Hello, and welcome to Dare to Know, interviews with quality and reliability thought leaders. I'm Tim Rogers, and today we have a special interview recorded by Fred Schenkelberg in January 2016 at the Rams Conference in Orlando, Florida. Fred's guest was David Nichols, Director of RMQ Engineering at Quantarian Solutions Incorporated. Mr. Nichols has over 38 years of experience in reliability engineering, reliability management, and quality control. His contributions to the reliability community include the development of the joint government industry GEIA standard 0009, reliability program standard, and the supporting G41 committee handbook, and the DOD jointly sponsored office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition, and the Technology Director Operational Test and Evaluation Reliability Improvement Working Group, and its follow-on OSD Reliability Working Group. Fred talked with David about, his, about the evolving role of military-funded reliability information analysis centers and the support that David provides through publications, training, and consulting. Let's join Fred's interview with David Nichols. So welcome to Dare to Know. This is Fred Schenkelberg, and I'm really honored to be sitting down with David Nichols. Thank you, Fred. And you're uh, with Quantarian Solutions, but right. I think I also originally met you at uh, RAC, or was it RIAC? Yeah, no, well, uh, I go back a long way. So I was associated with the Reliability Analysis Center from... Uh, well, originally 1976 to 1980, and then again uh, 92 to about uh, 2000. Okay, and that's probably the period I probably that's first right. overlapped with, right. with and visited Rome, and then I think the next time I visited, there was this splinter group called Quantarian Solutions that was doing yeah. some pretty interesting stuff. Yeah, Quantarian um, in 2000 uh, was formed. Mm -hmm. uh, there were several principals that split off from uh, IIT Research Institute, which was operating the RAC, mm -hmm. and formed Quantarian Solutions, which um, continued to focus in the, uh, the uh, reliability maintainability disciplines. The founders of the company uh, came out of uh, essentially uh, Rome Laboratory at that time, which right. was the center of the, the R&M universe, if you will, for the DOD. Mm -hmm. uh, and then acquisition reform came along in the mid-1990s, cancellation of standards and so on. Uh, the Rome Laboratory mission changed totally out of the R&M area. So Quintarian was sort of there to pick up, uh, pick up the slack and extend some ideas uh, that we had uh, governing reliability. Well, you were between you and, and RIAC, it was really the, and, and the, the remnants of the Rome laboratories was really the only place in, even in industry, where you could go get questions answered, you could find resources, you could, I could call you and say, hey, what's this Arrhenius equation, what do I do next? Or, right, right, and, and that was really, along with the product lines that RAC offered and that RIAC continued, was really one of the big assets of that type of arrangement is mm -hmm. to have a centralized resource 
that people could call and, and ask those types of questions. They didn't have to hunt around for other companies. Or well, whatever. you were doing, doing this before Google, so. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and then it's evolved. Now it's, Quantarian's still there and it has similar type activities, but you're also in, in something called RMQSI Knowledge Center. So it's, that sounds a lot like what Rack was. Well, what transpired was that the Reliability Analysis Center uh, contract uh, was recompeted under the IAC program, and in 2005 was awarded as the um, Reliability Information Analysis uh, right. Center, so RIAC. So Quantarian was the sub to the prime on that contract, Wiley, and we were responsible for the day-to-day -day operations of the RIAC. Well, you were the guys, the, you'd pick up the phone if we called with a question. That's exactly right. 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 Um, so that contract ran from 2005 until, uh, I think, 2014. Okay. The uh, DTIC-IAC program was reorganized, and, and essentially the 10 legacy IACs that DTIC used to operate were consolidated into essentially three major IACs. The Cybersecurity and Information Systems Information Analysis Center uh, was set aside as a small business uh, opportunity. It essentially consolidated the old data analysis center for software, the uh, IATAC, which is the Information Assurance uh, Information Analysis Center Modeling and Simulation IAC. The second major IAC was Homeland Defense, mm -hmm. which um, consolidated one or two IACs, but essentially built up uh, a lot of more technical capability in areas like uh, critical infrastructure and those types right. of areas. And then finally, uh, the Defense Systems IAC was set up, which absorbed the Reliability Information Analysis Center, uh, the AMTIAC, Advanced Materials and Manufacturing Technology mm -hmm. Information mm -hmm. Analysis Center, um, the Weapon System Information Analysis Center, WISTIAC, uh, and a couple others. Right. So, you, Quinturians, you know, I'm going to interrupt you. A lot of these things sound like military acronyms and, and really aimed at the military as the customer. I don't think that's the only, I mean, it's I think the primary focus, but these systems were set up. I was at HP and, and called you guys regularly. Well, that, and that was one of the things perhaps unique about the Reliability Information Analysis Center was that it did not just cater to the defense uh, community. Um, things like weapon systems, yeah, you're not going to go into Best Buy and, and buy a shoulder-fired missile or anything like that. Well, that'd be cool. But, <laughs> but RIAC essentially uh, got a good portion of its business um, in terms of, of consulting that we did, in terms of products that we sold, training that we did from the commercial sector. And well, it, commercial it also sector keeps you in industry. touch with what's going on in the commercial world because right. companies like IBM and the HP and, and others were making a lot of advances, and you could bring that back to the military right. folks. Right, right. Although I know that's a hard thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> Very hard. Well, especially um, companies protecting proprietary rights and things like that. So, yeah, it's, it, things have gotten a lot more difficult in that perspective from a lot of different perspectives. Well, that's part of I mean, why we're here at the conference. It's a way to share ideas and right. cross-feed and all that kind of stuff. And, and um, But have you seen many changes? I mean, through, in, in the business you've been doing and you just described, it's, it's sharing knowledge, uh, 
as a as a career basically of getting information out to people is that changed much with the advent of search engines and the the impact of millennials I'll, I'll use air quotes there or you know just the changes in the information availability well it definitely is is opened up avenues to get to information uh, that we couldn't get to before mm -hmm. um, it's, it's easier to do a search and, and find work that's going on in different areas that, you know, five, ten years ago or whatever, you'd never know that that work existed because right. you wouldn't, weren't able to tap in. Um, so that's the information side of it. The data side has become perhaps more difficult to collect over the years because uh, government systems have changed so that you don't have the visibility down to the levels of data that you would perhaps like at the, the uh, IC level or, or below. At component levels. I, I remember at, at Hewlett-Packard we had it, they used to do all their own internal failure analysis yeah. to the component level yeah. and we had our own internal uh, parts count database essentially yeah. Yeah. that was for our products, our customers and, and we wouldn't share that. And, and I know that uh, we under uh, Iraq uh, benefited from that because companies were willing to share. Right. And when, when an update was done to a handbook, companies wanted to get their stamp on having participated in that type of process. So right. it was a source of pride. It was. And then we stopped doing the part down to the detailed level, except right. in rare cases. And then the lawyer stepped in and said, well, you can't say that family of products has that reliability or, or unreliability for liability reasons and all that stuff and they, they kind of clamped all that down. But there used to be one where, they, I mean, the Air Force gathered a ton of information and but they also stopped going down to the detailed component level. And I think a lot of that had to do with budgets. So Isn't that kind of uh, a they weren't going to pay for, for collecting the data. Uh, and then because of what you mentioned with lawyers getting involved, it became more and more difficult for the government to get access to data at that level. And, and uh, private companies didn't want to share that data unless it was required in the contract, right. which typically it wasn't. So, and I get that question fairly often as well, you know, where do I find good sources of data? And, and unfortunately our trend is, is that's gotten worse even though we, we can find procedures on how to do a hypothesis test or accelerated testing and, and technical papers on topics like that yeah, well, are more out there. Obviously the field data is a lot, a lot more difficult to obtain. Where we used to get field data down to the piece part level, now uh, we're lucky to get it at the circuit card level and more often than not it's at a higher level in LRU. So yeah, it's at a system or something, yeah. And you have to find avenues to to uh, essentially get that information back to the OEMs that do have the specific data when equipment's returned to them, mm -hmm. and then you have to hope that those uh, OEMs are, are collecting and analyzing and using that data. We've had instances where we've gone back to OEMs because we've, we've made arrangements with them to uh, get that traceability, and it turns out their data has, has disappeared as well. They've shipped it off somewhere that's not being paid attention to. So there is a, a historical path that's been lost in a lot of cases, which adds to the difficulty in collection. It is. It, yeah, the, it, 
and, and I'm sure you're seeing the questions too, is well, how do I analyze that data? How do I make sense of this stuff? And we're seeing more and more uh, data collection on, on plant fac factory floors, on right. automobiles collect a ton of information. Right. Um, there's all kinds of consumer products that are collecting data about usage and environmental conditions. And I think there's a couple of papers this year on RAMS about dealing with big data. Right. It's kind right. of a buzzword, yet right. we're collecting more tele telemetry type things than ever before and relating it to reliability or prognostic health or, or other elements. Um, have you seen, you know, is that, is that gonna pan out? Are we getting a handle on dealing with that data? Well, I think individual companies probably are mm -hmm. um, in terms of, of pulling in data from a number of different companies and so on. It, it's a more difficult process because people are keeping the data to themselves. And we still find instances where, yes, you can collect tons and tons of data. If you're not dedicating the resources to analyzing it and drawing some conclusions from it, then you are just collecting tons and tons of data right. and, and data how is rich it benefiting your company. What, what's that phrase, uh, data rich but information poor? Yeah, that's right. That. Definitely. Yeah, and then, you know, we struggle with it all the time is, is working as reliability professionals of well, what data do we collect, there's a cost to that, and then making sure it connects and adds value and do all those things. But we're still getting questions on, well, what, how do I use a Weibel plot? How do I, uh, what kind of regression analysis should I use? What tools are available? Right. And now you've seen the progression of all these software tools of coming from, remember Bain Systems? They had some regression techniques, and you could do degradation analysis and, and uh, nonlinear equations, and yeah, it was kind of yeah. a precursor to Mathematica even way back. Yet now we've got tools that are, you know, ReliSoft and Item, and I think right. PTC still has the relic stuff. As well, right, right. And it, and you can dump in a bunch of failure data, and you get stuff out. Right. Yet I'm seeing some real fundamental. Misinterpretations or mis, you know, people are, are kind of going with the defaults and. Well, and then when you sort of rely on uh, software tools to help you out, yes, there's a benefit to that in that it can make the process of analyzing data quicker, but then you have a loss of understanding perhaps of what's behind the data analysis being done by the software right. tools. So, are they using sound principles? Um, and whether they are or they aren't, you still need to have that basic understanding of, okay, how is this being developed? What does this data really mean? So in the context of, of education, I think there's still a need, especially for, for up-and-coming people in the reliability engineering field, as you get all the gray beards retiring, things like that, mm -hmm. to come up to speed in terms of what those processes uh, really mean so that you're not just blindly taking results from a software tool. And you get a pretty plot. Yeah, you get a pretty plot. Yeah. It's, it's the same with any analysis tool. If, yeah. if you just crank the number, you get a number. Yeah, and I'm sure you're aware that, that the problem has historically been that somebody from a non-technical field or a non-reliability field sees that number and for whatever non-technical or programmatic reason, they may run with it. Right. And 
it gets codified into a requirement or whatever, and then essentially it's the reliability guys that beat up that say, "Hey, where'd that we come from? How come it didn't perform?" Or we need you to, to make that number better because this is what our contract says. That's right. Yeah, and, and when it gets in the military <laughs> contracts, and sometimes those are done, you know, decade or more prior, mm -hmm. and that makes it tough. Yet the. I mean, the tools are getting smarter. Now there's, there's increasing amounts of artificial intelligence and, and, and elements like that. Have you seen anything like that coming through? Uh, I haven't really seen too much of it myself. I know there was a, a presentation that I said in uh, yesterday that talked about artificial intelligence. And I guess the thing that was running through my mind is that, okay, the, the intelligence that's embedded has to be defined by some human anyway. So are they, are they going through and really understanding the process? And I guess the example that was, was sticking in my head is that we always have this process as, as good reliability engineers are wanting to get down to root failure cause. That's right. But in many cases, we still see that that the analysis is only going down to root failure symptom. That's right. And it's not getting down to the cause. So we have a focus on, on a hardware root cause, but that might be caused by uh, anything like contamination for a bad bond, or it could be poor training of mm -hmm. the person mm -hmm. doing the bonding, or it could be bad documentation. Mm -hmm. uh, bad that repair leads procedures. To the bad, process, bad repair procedures. So, how are those types of things being considered in an artificial intelligence scenario mm -hmm. so that you're ensured that you're getting down below what many people might say, oh, okay, that's the root cause, but it really isn't. That's right, that's right. And that, that's been a perennial struggle. And I, yeah. I, I fear one of the reasons I asked that question is that the, the making the software easier to do a Weibull plot hasn't kept pace with teaching people how to, to interpret it, and then if we get exactly more and more right. root cause artificial intelligence, for example, it may thwart our ability to actually get to the true root cause and actually be yeah, effective. Yeah, because now you've stopped thinking about the, the path to the root cause because you've got a software program that, that says it's good. And you don't understand necessarily the logic that's built into that artificial intelligence to, to know it, so you start to trust the answer from the software mm -hmm. more than, than your own critical thinking abilities to take it down to the true root cause. So for the, I'm gonna shift gears a little bit. Over the last oh, almost 10 years, I, 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 well, even longer than that, and I'm sure you see this too, is that people call and say, hey, I'm, you know, I'm looking for a job or a position in reliability engineering, you know, have any openings. And then, and then when we have a company has a downturn, you probably get the same calls like, "Hey, we're, we're I, I'm look, you know, I'm looking for a spot." And in other places, you get the hiring managers. You know, any good candidates? You don't have anybody in the work? Anybody take your class that you'd recommend? You know, any, you know, you get probably get those calls. So I, I've informally been keeping track of the ratio of how many mm -hmm. requests for candidates versus looking for jobs. And for the last ten years, it's been a great time to be a reliability engineer. Yeah. Now, I'm starting to wonder, are there enough reliability engineers? Um, I would tend to say no, just from the perspective that you're getting a lot of old-timers like myself that are, are retiring and leaving the field. And 
I don't know that you necessarily have a large quantity of people who go to college saying, hey, I want to be a reliability engineer when I grow up. So there's still that, that area, I think, where new engineers are being steered into the field as opposed to actively pursuing a career. Well, what makes it. a better reliability engineer? Somebody that you know, goes to school deliberately to be a reliability engineer, or somebody has some design experience or operations experience first, or? Uh, I'm not sure if you got I mean, your it's, it's nice, first. It's <laughs> nice from, from the education standpoint to have the theoretical background. Mm -hmm. uh, I personally prefer more the practical application, critical thinking skills associated with it. Mm -hmm. So it's mm -hmm. nice to understand the theory if you can't apply it to solving practical problems, then then that becomes a bit of a problem. Right. Um, so you know, it, it's, it's sort of a mix. It doesn't hurt to have the education. On the other hand, some of the best reliability engineers didn't have that extensive education, but they they've worked on systems. They've seen uh, things in action and right. critical thinking skills and common sense in a lot of cases sort of steer the direction that you need to go. And there's plenty of resources, including through Quantarian Solutions and other places to get courses and classes. And uh, Definitely. You I mean, can learn training courses. There, there are live training courses. There's online training courses. And, uh, you know, that's one of the benefits of the... Of the uh, are you still doing the courses in uh, Celebration, Florida? Yeah, we're still doing uh, two essentially two open training courses, one in June in Virginia Beach, Virginia Beach and then one in um, December in Celebration. Celebr and where those where is Celebration? Popular. I've always wanted well, actually, that. <laughs> Celebration is the, I guess you'd call it the Disney-owned and operated community. Oh, so it's uh, here in Orlando. Yeah, it's right in, right oh, in Orlando. Okay. Okay. Uh, it's associated with, I believe, the Stetson University Center there. So okay. That's At least that's a training training facilities that we've used. Yeah, well, that's cool. All right, well, anything else you want to, anything else coming up that you want to uh, mention? Or was, this will come out probably in a month or so. Yeah, I mean, not, uh, not really anything additional to offer. It's just I've been involved in the business a long time and I've seen the pendulum swing both ways. And in the process of the, the pendulum swinging, sometimes it's difficult to retain the, the forward inertia of yeah. having things improve uh, for the better. But um, I certainly hope that uh, the reliability engineering discipline continues in that direction. Keep honing those critical thinking skills and mm -hmm, come up mm -hmm. with new ideas, think outside the box, but focus on the practical aspects of it and, and don't lose the practical aspects uh, over any types of modeling or, or things that are, are intended to simulate or replace critical thinking skills. That's right. Yeah, that's really good advice. I appreciate that. And how should people get a hold of you? What's the easiest way to find you and your, your team? Uh, well, Quantarian has a website at Quantarian.com. Okay, and we'll hook that up in the show notes. And uh, we also operate the RMQSI Knowledge Center, which is RMQSI.org. I still look uh, for it by rack. <laughs> 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 I'm sorry, and it finds it. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. got enough connection there. But, uh, yeah, we'll put that you know, link. The publications in there that we have that we used to offer under RIAC are still available through either Quantarian or the RMQSI Knowledge Center. Okay, uh, so as we'll well as add new, those. Uh, new tools and publications. Yeah, no, and I highly recommend it. I've learned so much from you guys over the years, and, and the information and, and the. And it, 
there's not that many spots to, to gather and, and get this stuff. So we really appreciate it. Well, thank you. And thanks for sitting down and talking to me today. Thank appreciate you. it. Thanks, yeah, Frank. Right.